Amen. I invite you to take your copy of Scripture this morning and turn to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. And uh, we are continuing our series in Romans chapter 6 through 8. And uh, I'm going to read chapter 7 for us in its entirety, and then uh, we will look at our text this morning. So if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide for you, uh, you'll find our passage on page 943 and 944. 943 and 944. Romans chapter 7, and I'll begin reading for us in verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate." And now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? From this body of death. 
Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are so grateful for your word and for the truth and the power of your word. And Lord, we pray that as we look to your word now, that you would help us by your Holy Spirit. Lord, lead us and guide us into all truth. And Father, we pray that the truth we hear, we would understand. And we pray the truth that we understand, we would be changed by for your glory. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, as I mentioned earlier, we are currently in a series in which we are considering the theme of living the gospel from Romans chapter 6 through 8. And we have been working through Romans chapter 7. Now, Romans chapter 7 is a particularly challenging portion of Scripture. And so this morning, I want us to do something a little different. Sometimes when I preach through a chapter of the Bible, we'll work through it verse by verse. When we get to the end of the chapter, I'll go back and do an overview of the chapter as a whole. Some of you might remember I did that when we walked through Ephesians chapter 1. We took several weeks to walk through the chapter. And then when we got to the end, we did I did one sermon on the chapter as a whole. Or when we went through the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, we walked through each one of the Beatitudes, and then I think it took a couple of weeks, and we looked at the Beatitudes as a whole. Well, I'm not going to do exactly that this morning, because we actually haven't gotten all the way through Romans chapter 7. But having worked through half of the chapter, uh, we went through verse 12 last time we were in Romans 7, I felt compelled this morning for us to take a step back and look at the chapter as a whole, and to consider what we've learned so far, to look forward a little bit to where we are going, and then to press in a little bit deeper in terms of where we currently are. So I hope that as we do so, as we look at this challenging section of Romans 6 through 8, I hope as we look at the chapter as a whole, this will give us a better understanding of the chapter and set us up well for next week as we consider the last part of Romans chapter 7 and our final sermon in Romans 7. So this is what we're going to do this morning, and this is our outline, okay? I want us to consider, first of all, where we've been. Secondly, I want us to consider where we're going. And then third, and this is where we'll spend most of our time, where we are, and we'll press a little bit deeper into verses 7 through 12. So first of all, where we've been. Now, if we think back to verses 1 through 6, the first section that we looked at in Romans chapter 7, Paul here acknowledges that we are all tempted to look to the law for both salvation and sanctification. So we are tempted to look to the law to save us, to save us from the guilt and the condemnation of our sin. We're also tempted to look to the law for sanctification, that is, to be set apart, to grow in holiness, to grow more and more into the image of Christ. We are tempted to look to the law to work that work in us. And so Paul opens Romans chapter 7 by explaining that when we trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, we were united to Him by faith. We were united to Christ in His death. 
we were united to Christ in his resurrection. And part of what it means to be united to Christ in his death means that we died to the law. In other words, we died to the law as a hope for saving us and for sanctifying us. And in dying to the law, we were made free to marry another, to belong to another, to be united to another. This is what he says in Romans chapter 7, verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you might belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. So what Paul is wanting us to see in these opening verses is that it's not a meticulous fascination with the law. It's not a spiritual reliance upon the law that will result in our sanctification and us growing in greater holiness and becoming more like Christ. Rather, it is a union, a marriage, an all-consuming relationship with the living, resurrected Christ that will result in a vibrant, fruit-bearing Christian life in which we grow in more holiness, in which we become like our beloved groom, the Lord Jesus. So it's through union with Christ, it's through communing with Christ, it's through belonging to the Lord Jesus that we experience victory over sin and life in the Spirit. You might remember what Martin Luther had to say on this point. Luther said, quote, A man would have to be an idiot to write a book of laws for an apple tree, telling it to bear apples and not thorns, seeing that the apple tree will do it naturally and far better than any laws or teaching can prescribe, end of quote. So we can think of the absurdity of that. If you had an apple tree, you think, I want this apple tree to produce apples. So we write down on a placard, bear apples, not thorns. Luther says you have to be an idiot to do that. That's not going to affect the apple tree at all. And it is similar in the Christian's life. The apple tree bears apples because it has life within itself that naturally bears apples. And the same way as Christians, the law can't affect the kind of deep change that we need. But rather when we're united with Christ and we commune with Christ and Christ lives within us and we are in Him, then we naturally, being connected to Christ, bear fruit that is pleasing to God. So it's not the law that will sanctify us, but it's union with Christ, it's belonging to Christ, it's communing with Christ that will result in our sanctification. Now having established that we are not saved nor are we sanctified by the law, but we are saved and sanctified by grace through faith in Jesus, Paul now addresses a likely objection. This is in verses 7 through 12. So given what Paul has said, Paul assumes that his Jewish opponents will protest, well, if the law cannot save us and the law cannot sanctify us, then what is the use of the law? If the law, in fact, arouses sin within us and results in death, are you saying, Paul, that the law of God is sin? So Paul asks this question in verse 7. You see it there. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? And you see his answer, by no means. And then Paul goes on to make several statements regarding the relationship between the law and sin. He goes on to say that the law reveals our sin. He actually acknowledges that he would not have known 
the covetousness of his own heart if it not been for the law. And then he says, not only does the law reveal sin, but don't you remember this was surprising. Paul says there in the text that not only does the law reveal sin, but it arouses sin within us so that our sin becomes all the more apparent. You remember we gave the example of Augustine, the early church father, and he talks about how he and some of his friends went to a vineyard where there were some pears, and he said, we stole the pears. And why did we steal the pears? He says, I didn't steal the pears because they were particularly good fruit. I had better fruit at home. I didn't steal the pears because I was particularly hungry. I wasn't hungry at all. I stole the pears in order to be a thief. Given the fact that I knew I couldn't steal them, it made me all the more want to steal them, to exert this kind of pseudo-freedom, this false sense of freedom that I could do what I wanted to do and God nor anyone else could tell me otherwise. So in this sense, the commandment aroused, it stirred up the sin within him. Paul goes on to say, therefore, that the law that promised life See, the law says, obey this law, obey these commandments, obey these rules, and you will know life. You will know life forever. You will be in right relationship with God. The law that promised life proved to be death to me. That is my hopes of attaining a right standing before God based on my morality or my good deeds or my own personal character died. All those hopes died. But then Paul comes to the conclusion in verse 12 and he, he's, he's really addressing this question. Well, is all of this the fault of the law? Is it the fault of the law? He says, no, rather, and you see this in verse 8 and 11, it was sin. He says it twice. It was sin seizing the opportunity through the commandment, through the law. So at the end of the day, Paul says, the problem is not the law. The law is not sin. The problem is sin in me. Using the commandment to expose my sin, to arouse and aggravate my sinful nature, and ultimately to condemn me for not meeting the righteous standard of the law. So Paul so far in Romans chapter 7 says, don't trust the law to save you or to sanctify you, not because the law is evil, but because you are a sinner. And the law does not possess the power to save you from your sin or to sanctify you for holiness. But Christ can do what the law cannot do. And this is where we are currently in our study in Romans 7. Now in a few moments, we're going to come back to these verses, 7 through 12, and I want us to press into them a little bit deeper. But now I want us to move to our second point. That's where we've been. I want us to move to our second point, where we're going. And this is verses 13 through 25. Now, I was going to look at verses 13 through 25 in two different parts. It's going to take two weeks to do that, but I decided it'd be better to look at them as a whole because the argument that goes through these verses, I think, are it's better to consider in one whole. And so next week, we'll look at these verses and we'll conclude our study of Romans 7. But let me just say this, just as a bit of a preview going into it. It's a highly debated passage of Scripture. And one of the reasons is because scholars disagree over whether Paul is describing in these verses himself as a non-Christian, that is before he trusted in the Lord Jesus, or is he describing his experience as a Christian, as one who has already trusted in Christ. Some even propose that it's neither, we won't even go there. 
But if I studied this passage and reflected on these verses, I'm really looking forward to preaching this text next week. I hope you'll make it a point to come back and to be here next Sunday. But just to give you a bit of a preview, I want to say I do believe that as Paul, and I've gone back and forth on this a little bit, but I do believe in verses 13 through 25 that Paul is describing his experience and giving personal testimony as a Christian. Now, one of the reasons why I say that is because of the change of the verb tenses in Romans chapter 7. Now, now I, want, I want you just to see this as kind of a preview for next week, and then next week we'll look at it more fully. Look there in chapter 7, verses 7 through 13, and Paul writes these words. What then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if I, it had not been for the law, I would have, no, have not known sin. That's past tense. For I would not have known, past tense, what it is to covet, if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced, that's past tense, in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Both those verbs are past tense. The very commandment that promised life proved, past tense, to be death to me. For sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. Both verbs, deceived and killed, are past tense. So here it seems like in this section, Paul is looking back and he's reflecting upon his experience prior to or in the act of coming to faith in Christ. Now notice what happens in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am, present tense of the flesh, sold, present tense, under sin. For I do not understand, present tense, my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. All of those verbs are present tense. Verse 16, now if I do, present tense, what I do not want, present tense, I agree, again, present tense, with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells, presently dwells within me. Now why is that important? So, so, so the latter part here, it, in verses 13 to 25, Paul is talking in the present tense because I believe Paul is describing himself as a Christian and his experience as a Christian in his battle with sin. Now why is that important? Because the victory, if you were here for the series in Romans chapter 6, the victory over sin that we saw in Romans chapter 6 and we celebrated every single week, the true victory we have as Christians over sin and the ongoing battle with sin that Paul acknowledges here in Romans chapter 7, both are true. They're both true simultaneously. And it is essential that we realize that if we are to have a biblical understanding of sanctification and the Christian life. And so that's where we're going next week, and I hope you'll be here for that. But then third, where we are. And this is in verses 7 through 12. Where we are. Now last week we looked at these verses, and let me just give you a sense of them first, and then we're gonna, I want to show you something here. So Paul opens again in verse 7 with the question, what then shall we say that the law is sin? And he answers it, by no means. Now, then Paul goes on to start. This is where the personal testimony comes from the Apostle Paul. Paul goes on to demonstrate by personal testimony that the law is not sin. 
Paul says, it is through the law, he says this in verse 7, that it is through the law that he came to understand what it is to covet. Now, we spoke about this a little bit last time, but we can imagine Paul, he was a good Jewish boy, grew up a Jew, he was taught the law. We could imagine Paul coming to a point and he's going through the law in his own mind and in his own heart, and he thinks, you shall have no other gods before me. And Paul says, I got that one. I would never bow down to another idol that is not Yahweh, the God of the Bible. He comes to, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. I've been taught from a little boy to never speak irreverently of God's name. I got that one. You shall not steal. I would never take something that is not my own. And then he comes to the 10th commandment. You shall not covet. And that one got him. Because Paul could not deny that he had coveted. That is, he had sinfully longed for or desired what God had not granted to him or chosen to give him. And why does Paul choose here, as he's thinking about this, why does Paul choose to land on the command, you shall not covet? Well, on the face of things, all the other commandments are external in nature, right? Stealing, committing adultery, murder, taking the Lord's name in vain. We're thinking about the Ten Commandments here. But the Tenth Commandment undeniably addresses the wants and desires of the heart. And we said that in many ways, therefore, covetousness is the sin beneath all sins. It is the root of all other sins. We want what we want, therefore we steal. We want what we want, therefore we disobey our parents. Therefore we commit adultery. Therefore we kill. Therefore we slander. Now, some might object and say, no, covetousness is not the sin beneath all the other sins. Actually, pride is the sin underneath all other sins. Have you heard that before, that pride is the source of all sin? Or some people would say, no, it's not covetousness, it's not pride, it's idolatry. Idolatry is the sin beneath all other sins. And I would just say, maybe. But you see, what we recognize here is at the point when the heart deviates from God and goes its own way, it's complex. There is a complex uh, mixture of distorted affections asserting themselves against God in that moment. So, yes, in that moment, we are asserting ourselves above God, which is pride, right? But why do we assert ourselves above God? Because we want something that we cannot obtain. Because we desire something which God has not chosen to grant to us, which is covetousness. And that means we're worshiping something more than we are worshiping God, which is idolatry. In fact, Paul says explicitly in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5, and in Colossians 3, verse 5, covetousness is idolatry. So it's complex. But here's the point. Underneath our sin, or if we witness sin in other people's lives, underneath the sin of adultery or murder or stealing or slandering, there is most often a sin beneath the sin. 
There is something underneath that sin that is at the core of what's taking place. And the root of that sin looks something like pride or covetousness or idolatry, which are all interrelated. And when Paul comes to the 10th commandment, he realizes he's forced to see his own heart. And he realizes, oh my goodness, even though at some level I may be able to say, I observe the external commandments of the law, my heart at the core of who I am is sinful and wicked. I am prideful. I covet. I am an adulterer. And so Paul says, through the law, my sin, and particularly My coveting was exposed and I died. Now, I didn't have time to point this out last time we were looking at this text, but I wanted to return to these verses in part to show you what I believe is a fascinating parallel here between Paul's personal testimony and the experience of Adam and Eve in the garden. So let's just walk through these verses, and I want us to note some of the parallels here between Paul's experience and the record of Adam and Eve's fall in Genesis chapter 3. And as we see these parallels, in fact, I think it may be the case that as Paul was writing down his own personal testimony here of how he became aware of the sinfulness of his own heart... Paul may have very well had in mind Genesis chapter 3, reflecting upon the fall of Adam and Eve and paralleling the two intentionally. So look there in verse 7. Paul says, Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. Now, Paul is acknowledging here by personal testimony that it was covetousness which finally revealed to him the sinfulness of his own heart. Now let me ask you this, what was the sin that led to the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden? It was the sin of coveting. In Genesis chapter 3 verse 6 we read these words, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. What is that? It's coveting, right? She saw it. She delighted in it. She desired it. So she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So the sin, we could say, was taking the fruit, right? But the sin underneath the sin, the root of the sin, was coveting. She saw, she desired, she delighted, she took. She had an inordinate desire for that which God had chosen to withhold from her. Look at verse 8. But sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For, apart from the law, sin lies dead. Now John Stott makes a really interesting point here. Stott says that when Paul writes, apart from the law, sin lies dead, it could mean 
that sin, or we could say the serpent, was in the garden before Adam and Eve were in the garden, or in the garden alongside Adam and Eve being in the garden, but had no opportunity to tempt or condemn Adam and Eve until the commandment came. So sin, apart from the law, lies dead. Because in the strictest sense, if there is no law to be violated, there is no commandment or there is no um, sin to be accounted for. Let me say that again. If there is no law to be violated, there is no sin to be accounted for. But when the commandment was given, sin, or we could say the serpent, seized the opportunity, right? Here's my opportunity. And sin which lie dormant now asserts itself against the commandment. Who are you to tell me what I cannot do? Notice verse 9. I was once alive apart from the law. Now I believe that when Paul says he was once alive apart from the law, what Paul means is that in reference to himself, before he really examined his life carefully in comparison to the law, he thought he was a pretty good person. He thought he was a morally upright person. He thought he was in a good place with God. He thought everything was great, spiritually, morally speaking. But the law crushed and killed those false assumptions when the law pointed out his real, this real sinfulness of his own heart. However, strictly speaking, it has been pointed out that this statement, I was alive apart from the law, can only truly be said of Adam. Because Adam and Eve were the only two people in the history of the world to exist without a sinful nature. And so in this sense, only Adam was truly alive. And we could say Eve was only truly alive. Spiritually, physically, emotionally, relationally, they were fully alive because they'd never known sin. And Paul sees something of himself and their experience before the law does its work in his heart. Look at verse 9. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. So what was the commandment in the garden? The commandment was in Genesis chapter 3, verse 3, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And implicit within that commandment is a promise. You can eat of all the trees of the garden. But if you, and if you don't eat of this tree, which I'm commanding you not to eat of this tree, you will live. And not only will you live, you will live forever in this glorious, beautiful garden in communion with God. The commandment came with a promise. But when the commandment came, sin asserted itself. Sin rebelled against the commandment. And as Paul writes here of his own experience, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Adam and Eve rebelled. They sinned. And the commandment resulted in death. Look at verse 11. For sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. 
So Paul says, as he's reflecting upon the law exposing sin in his own life, and he's reflecting upon the sinfulness of his own heart, he says, at the end of the day, what happened was, I was deceived. And Eve said the same thing in the garden, didn't she? When God came to Adam and Eve to give an account, for them to give an account for their rebellion in Genesis chapter 3, verse 13, we read, Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. You see, sin says that if you keep the commandment, you're going to miss out. But if you break the commandment, you'll know blessings and pleasure that the commandment could never provide for you. This is the deception of sin. And this is what Paul says happened in his own life. He was deceived. So notice here that as we work through these verses, verses 7 through 12, Paul's experience mirrors Adam and Eve's experience. And it seems, as we see all these connections, that Paul may very well have been intentionally writing his own personal testimony in such a way as to highlight these parallels with the experience of Adam and Eve. And we know that Paul wants us, and it seems like this is what he's doing here in his own personal testimony, Paul wants us to know that what has happened to him in his own discovery of his own sinfulness is not something that is unique to him. It is not something that is unique to a small group of people in the world, but rather the reality of coming to his own, the knowledge of his own sinfulness is a reflection of the experience of Adam and Eve because it is an experience of all of humanity. What happened with Adam and Eve in the garden is in fact paradigmatic. It is a typical example of Paul's experience, of your experience, of my experience, it's true of all of us. In fact, Paul makes this more general claim in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, where he says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that is Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. You see, my friends, we all possess this innate sense within us that there is a moral law that governs the universe. And apart from God's law, apart from God's word, I should say, we don't know how properly to relate to God's law. So we know that it exists, but we don't know how to relate to it apart from God's word. And so some try to deny the law. We could say this is true of maybe atheists or some agnostics or postmodernists. They say, oh, it just doesn't exist. There's no such thing as right and wrong. You remember what C.S. Lewis said about that, right? Those who claim that there's no such thing as right and wrong, they can't live consistent with that principle because they'll make that assertion and then they feel comfortable breaking a promise to you. But the second you break a promise to them... They'll say, that's not fair. And you could say, upon what standard? Of course, they're appealing to a moral standard outside of themselves that they assume is true. You can't lie to me. You can't cheat to me. That's not right. Others don't deny 
the law, but rather they determined to trust in the law for salvation. This is religious people. This is like Paul's Jewish opponents that he's addressing in part here in his Rome letter to the church in Rome. They say if we keep the law, then we can achieve a standard of righteousness that will set us right with God. But in large part, Paul is writing this letter to demonstrate that that's impossible, that we can't achieve a standard of righteousness according to the law that will set us right with God because we're sinners and we fail. Others look to the law for moral improvement. They don't deny it. They don't necessarily look to the law for salvation, but they look to the law for moral improvement. This is kind of the world's view of sanctification, the world's version of sanctification. They might say, I'm not religious, I'm just spiritual. I'm not concerned with eternal salvation, I just want to be a good person in the here and now. And so I need to give special attention to the law, to a moral code of ethics that will enable me to be the best person I can be in this life. Well, I would rather someone attempt to live by the law than to reject the law altogether be better for that person and better for society as a whole. But at the end of the day, Paul is trying to show us here in Romans that that is insufficient. That the law might help me at some level change my external behavior, but the law can't finally change us at the core of who we are. It can't do the deep, the deep kind of transformative work that needs to be done in my heart so that I don't just do good for my own sake, but so that I do good for the glory of God and for the sake of others and for God's eternal kingdom. And the law can't finally do that kind of transformative work in my heart. Only the gospel can do that. Because only the gospel recognizes that the law, at the same time, recognizes all of these truths. That the law is an undeniable reality that we cannot escape. But that the law cannot save us, nor can it sanctify us. But rather, the gospel declares that the law's purpose is to point us to the one who can do both. Both save us and both sanctify us. Namely, the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, we'll have the opportunity to baptize three individuals. And uh, so we'll have the joy of doing that and celebrating the Lord's grace in their lives. And in many ways, what Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 7 gets at the essence and the meaning of baptism. Because in baptism, one of the things we declare as we are baptized as Christians is that the law cannot save us. And it can't save me because I'm a sinner. Only Jesus can save me. He died for my sins and He was raised from the dead to conquer death on my behalf so that I might trust in Him, so that I might hitch myself to Him, so that I might belong to Him. Because only in Him can my sins be forgiven can be washed, can be cleansed. That's one of the things that baptism symbolizes, the washing away of our sins. And it's such great news because through our own personal experience, like Paul here, through our own personal experience and by the testimony of the law, we know that at our core, we are such great sinners. 
According to legend, when the 19th century Texan leader Sam Houston was baptized, the minister told him, your sins are washed away. And Houston replied, God help the fish. (laughs) My sins are so deadly. My sins are so poisonous. God help the fish. Of course, the water does not literally wash our sins away. But the water is a symbol of the reality that through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, all our sins have been washed away. In baptism, we also declare that the law cannot sanctify us. Because we cannot finally bring about the deep and fundamental change that needs to happen at the core of our being. Only Jesus can do that and it only happens by being united to Him through faith in His death and in His resurrection. Isn't this how Paul actually opens this section in Romans chapter 6 through 8? Go back to Romans chapter 6 and what does Paul tell us about baptism? In verses 3 and 4 he says... Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him in baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In other words, baptism is a symbol of our union with Christ. And as I baptize these three individuals in just a few moments, I will declare buried with Him in baptism as they go underwater, raised to walk in newness of life, to testify to testify to the radical transformation that takes place when we are united to Christ by faith. C.S. Lewis speaks of this transformation in an essay that he wrote entitled, Is Christianity Hard or Easy? He writes these words, quote, The ordinary idea which we all have is that we have a natural self with various desires and interests. And we know something called morality or decent behavior has a claim on the self. We're all hoping that when all the demands of morality and society have been met, that the power of natural self will still have some chance, some time to get on with its own life and do what it likes. He pays them, but he does hope that there will be enough left over for him to live on. You see, this is how most people, what Lewis is describing here, this is how most people try to negotiate the law which they know exists. They know there's this moral dynamic in the universe that they cannot escape, and so they try to work out some kind of deal, some type of negotiation. I will do part of what you want me to do in order to secure that I will have somewhat of a satisfying life But I'll only go so far, and I I hope in the end I have this part of me left so that I can do what I want to do. And so we try to negotiate with this reality that we can't escape, which we can't deny. But the Christian way is different, Lewis says. Listen to what he writes, quote, The Christian way is different, both harder and easier. Christ says, give me all. I don't want just this much of your time and this much of your money and this much of your work so that your natural self can have the rest. I want you, not your things. I have come not to torture your natural self. I will give you a new self instead. 
hand over the whole natural self, all the desires, not just the ones you think wicked, but the ones you think innocent, the whole outfit, and I will give you a new self instead. End of quote. And this, my friends, is the call of the gospel. This is the reality that we celebrate in Christian baptism, buried with him in baptism. The old self dies, raised to walk in newness of life, a new self, transformed by the resurrected Christ. Christ in us, us in him, a new person in the Lord Jesus. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. So even as we celebrate baptism this morning, my friends, baptism is a call to non-Christians. It is a call to repent of your sins and to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and to follow Him in baptism. But also remember, baptism is a call to Christians. Remember who Paul is writing to here in Romans. He's not writing to non-Christians. He's writing to Christians, right? And what does he say in regards to baptism in Romans chapter 6? He's speaking to Christians and he says, remember your baptism. Because in remembering your baptism, I want you to remember your union with Christ. You are not the person you used to be. You are altogether different. And by the grace of God and through faith in Christ and belonging to Him and communing with Him, He will sanctify you. He will change you. He will make you increasingly holy for His glory. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And Father, we acknowledge that although there are many things in this life that we can discern that are true and good, Lord, apart from Your Word, we are lost. Father, we acknowledge that we can discern that there is this moral reality in the universe, and all of us know this innately. But Lord, how to relate to the law, we do not understand apart from Your Word. We are tempted in our rebellion to deny it, or we are tempted in our pride to believe that by the law we can save ourselves and sanctify ourselves. But Lord, we thank You for the glorious good news of the gospel that declares only Christ can save. And that the purpose of the law is to point us to Him. Lord, we thank You for the life, for the death, for the resurrection of Jesus. And we thank You that through faith in Him, we can know the forgiveness of sins and we can know power and victory over sin. Lord, make this truth an increasing reality in each of our lives. And Lord, we pray that You would be glorified now as we celebrate Your grace in the lives of those who are coming to be baptized. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.